0: Thank you for that worship time. So thankful that we have a church with so many gifted people in that area because I am not gifted in that area. I'm so glad to have you all. I'm going to be reading from Luke 1 46 through 55. Follow along with me. This is what it says And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. For his mercy. Sorry. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown mighty strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud and their inmost thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Let me pray before we start. I must admit, I just feel feel very scattered right now, just... Maybe it's coming off of Christmas. Maybe it's the news that I got this morning. I just really, I don't know if anyone else feels like this this morning or if it's just me alone. I just feel I need I, just need to be, I need I need focus that I am lacking right now. So if you'll bow with me, we'll pray this for all of us, okay, before we enter into the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would please align our hearts up rightly this morning. Lord calls our hearts to be in the right place, calls my heart to be in the right place, calls my mind to be in the right place, calls us all to be here this morning. Not somewhere else, but here. Father, I ask that you would be preparing our hearts even now to receive this word and Lord, I pray that it would do what your word does in hearts that are prepared to receive it and believe it and walk in obedience to it. And that is create change. And Lord, I pray that you would be changing all of us to be more like your dear son. Lord, some in here might not even know you yet and need to come to faith in Christ Jesus to start his or her relationship with you. Lord, others of us have been walking with you for some time. And we still admit that we need to be more and more like Jesus. That we're so thankful for how far you've brought us. We can remember what we were like And you've changed us. Please continue to change us this morning. Through this word, please, in Christ's name, I pray it. Amen. When you think about the Christmas story, nothing in that narrative is typical for what you would expect when you think about God binding himself to man. What do I mean? Well, the message of Christ's birth is announced to some of the lowest people in society at that time, the angels announcing this message to shepherds would be like current day, perhaps. Maybe you think of it this way. Angels announcing this great news to truck drivers as they're leaving Waffle House. Just not typical at all. So this message is given to some of the lowest in society. The text doesn't even tell us their names. These are nameless shepherds. Then the angel tells the shepherds that a Savior is born, and they'll find this baby wrapped in cloths, lying in an animal's feed trough. And they find him there because his parents couldn't even get a proper place to stay during the census. It's just, this is really strange. I mean, we're so used to hearing it every year that we just forget how strange it is, how backwards it is. We would not have planned this story this way. Would you? Well, I mean, would you have planned it this way? If you're trying to communicate how great Jesus is and what a magnificent thing this is that God came down to man, became man, to live among man, to save man, would you have invented a story like this? And this one's not invented though, is it? This one's real. I believe this, this even is a, more of a, a stamp of its reality in how backwards it is. Luke really shows us uh, a record here that's just so different, so strange, this Christ born in this way among the poor in a dirty place. That's his point, isn't it? That's really the point of this narrative. Jesus comes and brings salvation, but it's opposite to everything the world believes will save. Jesus turns everything upside down, and that's why I've titled the message that this morning is the Advent, turning everything upside down. We're going to keep touching upon that theme throughout this text. And this text, I don't know if you know this or not, but this text that I read uh, stumbled through. Forgive me. That was probably one of the most stumbled readings I've done to date. But the Lord's words are still true and real and can still affect the heart. This is called Mary's Magnificat. That word, Magnificat, is the first word in the Latin version of this. Literally, Mary says, it magnifies my soul, the Lord, in Latin, if you were to write it out that way. And the first word, magnificat, means it magnifies. And so in the Latin translation of this, this is just called the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, that's been what this section of Scripture is just retained as its title, a way to reference this part of Scripture, for the ages, and it just stuck. And so now people call this the magnificate, because it means it magnifies. And this is right after Mary sees her cousin Elizabeth. And the sound of Mary's greeting reaches Elizabeth's ears, and when that happens, the baby within the womb of Elizabeth, which is John the Baptist, leaps. And Elizabeth says, and You know, Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said. And then Mary begins to bring forth this praise, which is written in a poetic way, by the way. It's like a psalm in the New Testament. It's written like that even. And it comes out sort of like a psalm. It comes out something very similar to what we see Hannah saying when she has Samuel Comes out something very similar to one of the Psalms of David. And why is that? I think we sometimes think Mary was standing there and then all of a sudden she was just like zapped and she just starts talking these things. And then when she's done, she goes back and she says, What did I say? Did you? What? what I blacked out. No, this, this came from her mind and her heart. And why did it? Why did she have this vocabulary that she had? It wasn't just matrixed into her, like plugged in, and all of a sudden she just had this knowledge. This came out of a heart and a mind that was saturated with Scripture. Why did she have this vocabulary? From where did it draw? From her mind and heart that have been memorizing these things from of old. From a little girl, she was memorizing, hearing Scriptures. Why? Did it stay there in her heart because she loved it so? What stays in your heart? What stays in your mind, those things that you like the most when it comes to literature, when it comes to songs, right? Now, granted, yes, there's some songs that I detest that I used to listen to when I was a teenager that are still stuck there, and I wish they weren't. But you know what I mean. You know the point that I'm trying to make. We can bring those things to mind quickly that are there because we like them to be there because they're there so often. We just keep filling ourselves up. And this is what Mary would have done. This is where this came from. I'm trying to drive home the fact that she was a godly young lady and she loved the scriptures. And it showed. It just poured out of her mouth when her heart was filled up with joy. That's what came out. And look what she says. Look how she starts. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God My Savior. Those two lines there very similar to the Psalms as well. This is actually what we call in the Psalms a parallelism. It's when two lines are basically saying the same thing. They they parallel each other. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. It's almost the same thing said. And this is why I love parallelisms because you get one line and you say, ooh, that's good. And then the second line just adds to it. With just more information. You say, "Well, now it's even better. My soul magnifies the Lord. My inmost being, the deepest core of who I am that makes me up, that part of me magnifies the Lord, she says. And once this word magnifies, it has the idea of enlarging. Not that God was enlarged, but her glorying in him was enlarged. Because when you magnify something, you're not adding anything to it. You're just seeing it for what it really is a bit better, right? When you magnify something, you get to see more details of it. Just get to see more about what's true of it. And that's what her soul is doing. It has the idea of declaring to be great. Some translations even translate it glorifying. My soul. The inmost part of me gives glory to him. And then also, she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, when you see God for who he is, when he's magnified in your life, when you get to see him more, did you know the natural outcome of that is joy? That's what she's experiencing. My soul magnifies, glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices. God my Savior, because that's the natural reflex when you see God for who who he truly is, when you know him. When you know God, you know this, those of you who are saved. When you get more God, you love that. You enjoy that. It's what you want. Remember when you first got saved, even, and you just could not get enough of this book? I remember that as a teenager, just wanting to read it and read it and read it and read it. I just wanted more God. The more I got, the hungrier I got. And we see Mary rejoicing. She has this word rejoice. It means great joy, full of joy. In this second line, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. I told you this is written kind of like a poem. Listen to how it literally reads, that second line. Literally, this is how it reads. And rejoices the spirit of me In God, the Savior of me, and rejoices the Spirit of me, in God, the Savior of me. That's how, it. if you were to translate it just word for word, literally, it's like it gallops and rejoices the Spirit of me, in God, the Savior of me. It's just, it's beautiful. It's really written and just spoken beautifully. Not only are the words so meaningful, the way it was spoken was beautiful as well. And notice she calls God her Savior, Again, we've made this point before. This shows that Mary was not sinless. Our Catholic friends have that tradition that say she was just sinless. Well, she declares God to be her Savior. That's definitely a truth that we can point out here. But another truth that I want to point out is this this word Savior that's used right here, that she uses. It's used 24 times in the New Testament. 17 of those 24 times, it's used for Jesus Christ. So about 75% of the time when that word is used, it's used of Jesus Christ himself. He's that savior. Why do I point this out? God saves us through Jesus Christ. That is the only way for man to be saved. There's no other name given under heaven by which man may be saved except the name Jesus Christ, we're told. He's the only way to be saved, because as we learned last week, he's the only one who's taken the punishment for sinners. As a sinless sacrifice, as a perfect law keeper, he could die in our place. And that's the only hope we have, people. That's the only hope we have is Jesus Christ. He's the only way to be saved, according to Holy Scripture. And that way is open today for all who would receive him, repenting of their sins and putting their trust in him. That way is still open. There is day coming where it will be closed on the final day. So if you've not put your faith and trust in him, I encourage you, please do that. What are you waiting for? It's free. It's available. And the price has been paid. She tells next why. She's got all this glorifying and magnifying and rejoicing and great joy going on. She says it right in the next verse. She says, For, that means because, He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. Those three words, for He has looked, those those words, notice this. This should be encouraging for you, Christian. He doesn't hide His face. He doesn't hide his face from us. He looks upon us. Look, For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Those of us in humble estates, those of us even in a humble estate mentally, <laughs> physically, financially, sometimes even spiritually, he looks and he sees. You're not forgotten. He's, he looked upon Mary's humble estate. He didn't ignore her. He has looked. That's encouraging for the Christian, isn't it? He's not turning his face from you. Do you know why he's not turning his face from you, Christian? Because once upon a time, he turned his face upon his son. He forsook his son so that you'll never have to be forsaken. You will not be forsaken if you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus took that for you, he was forsaken. So that you don't have to be. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good good news? He's looked, she says. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. This is like a low condition. That's what she means here. The humble estate of his servant. She was poor. We know she was poor. How do we know she was poor? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave commands about What sacrifices had to be made at what times? This is how you worship me at this time. This is how you worship me at this time. Make these sacrifices. And then, built within those, he would say, But if you can't afford this animal, I'll accept this animal instead. Now, when it came for the time of Mary's um, purification, after she had baby Jesus and presents him to the temple there were certain sacrifices that had to be given for her purification. And we t- we're, we're told what sacrifice she brought doves. And guess what? Those were allowed to be given instead of the more expensive animal if you were poor. And what do we see Mary and Joseph giving? Turtle doves as their sacrifice. So we know, we know for a fact Mary and Joseph were poor. They were poor Jewish people, but faithful Jewish people. And God looks on her humble estate. He's not so concerned that she's poor. He doesn't care that she's poor. Because you can be very poor, but very rich at the same time, can't you? The ones that this world celebrates, the ones that this world says, these people are important, you need to listen to them. They're rich, they're famous, they're powerful, and that's what the world says, you need to be like these people. I mean, look at the people on magazines, celebrities, they have these perfect chiseled bodies, right? We're shown in the magazines, you need to be like these people. Or if you're an investor, people say, hey, take this guy's advice, he's a billionaire. Therefore, what he says is golden. His words are more important. Look at these people. Be like these people. Heaven has a different opinion about those people. The Bible says the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. You know who's going to be the ones that God says, look at these people. On the last day, likely some leather-skinned, wrinkled face lady living in a village right now, somewhere in Central America, South America, Africa, who is very godly and very generous and prays her heart out, and we will never hear about her. She'll never write a book. No one will ever interview her asking her opinion about something. No one will ever say, look at her fashion. Look at her body. Don't you want to be like her? No one will ever do that with her. But on the last day, she'll be lifted up. And all those who were pointed at and focused on and clamored for, they'll be last the humble estate was not important to God. What was important to God is, is this woman's heart. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Here's a poor teenage girl from Galilee. And she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And she's right. Amy now we're talking about this. Yesterday, we were talking about how amazing it was for Mary to have Jesus and to hold him and raise him. Do you know Mary was with him more and longer than anyone else? She was with him from conception to ascension. Longer than anyone else, she knew him and held him and was with him in his presence. That's blessed. That's amazing. (laughs) What a blessed state to be in. And she's right. All generations will call me blessed. You are right, Mary. Why are all generations going to call you blessed, Mary? She tells us in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercies on those who fear him from generation to generation. This word mighty was used in that day for kings and rulers. We'll actually see in verse 52, if you look there right now, for he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Do you see that? So, this word mighty in that day was something that was possessed, something that was had, this might by rulers, by kings, those who are in high positions of power and authority. And those people in that day got there not usually because they just worked real hard and just kept getting raises and, and, and the boss kept giving them greater and greater, and greater positions and, and there they were one day. It was usually a bloody battle to get there. It was usually the one who was the most ruthless, was the most powerful. Think about the ones who were powerful in that day and uh, around that day, Alexander the Great and those things. You know why we call him Alexander the Great? Because he killed so many people. That's what we mean by his greatness. We don't mean, oh, he was just so uh, holy. I mean, he's just a holy guy, generous. Look at all the orphans he helped. Alexander the Great, the great orphan helper. No. What do we mean? He conquered lands, so many of them, and killed so many people. And we call him Alexander the Great because of that. Isn't it interesting how the world ascribes greatness? No, he just killed a lot of people. Look how great he is. The mighty were not known for their mercy. Those two things didn't go hand in hand. Think of who was the mighty one in this day, the one who had might in Mary's day. It was Herod, King Herod. And what's King Herod going to do just months later? He finds out that this little Jewish baby is born among him who has the rights to the throne, he actually is born king. And what's he do? Oh, well, let me gladly step down from my throne and, and give him rule. No, he says, you know what? There's a threat to my rule. Let's do this. He's about two years or less. Okay, let's do this. Kill all the two-year-old boys, two years old and under. Murder them. That's who is mighty in that day. That's the mighty one of that day. When people talk about someone being mighty, it wasn't usually mixed with mercy. But what do we see here? What do we see about God? He's not like the mighty ones of the earth. Look at verse 50. His mercy is on those who fear Him. He's, he's, He's mighty, but also merciful. He's not like the kings of the earth. He's backwards. He's so backwards from what the world says is mighty. Mighty and merciful. And also, pure. Look at this. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you know God's name represents who he is? God's name explains something about who he is. God doesn't ever separate himself from his name. Holiness is his very identity. Identity. That's why those of us who know the Lord and have a right fear of Him, and we'll talk about what that fear means here in just a moment, but bear with me for now as I just explain this part. Those of us who know that His name is holy. And by the way, holy means set apart, unique, other. Again, other. Not like, the, not like anything that we've seen on planet Earth here. He's so other and different, and pure, and special. That those of us who know him and respect that name, that's why we are so careful with it. That's why we never use it as a four-letter filth word. We never drag his name through the mud. You can tell what people, you can tell how people feel about God by how they use his name. Respect his name. Don't ever use his name in an unworthy manner. You can tell the ones who don't love him and know him. They'll use his name as a common curse word. It's blasphemy. And we don't do that. Why? Because his name is holy. His name represents who he is. It's special. Did you know, if you, you can tell if someone's Jewish by how they write the name Lord. If you've ever been around a Jewish man or woman and they write the name Lord, they write L-R-D they leave the O out. Or if they write God, they write G-D. They're even afraid to write it out because they think, you know, what if I accidentally write it out in an unworthy way? I'm just going to not even ever write it. I'll just always substitute the O with a dash just in case I get it wrong. That's how gently I hold it. And Jews, that's why Matthew, the book of Matthew, who was pri- his book was primarily written to Jews. That's why you'll see whenever Matthew mentions the Lord or God, he'll substitute it with heaven. It's very often substituted for heaven in the book of Matthew because he was writing to Jews who did not write the Lord's name for fear that they would debase it in some way, Accidentally. And so she says, this mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He's so holy and his mercy is for those who fear him. Mercy for those who fear him. This is not a fear. When I first became a Christian, I I was told in the church that we were in, I I would hear it, fear the Lord. And I thought, why? I love him a lot now. And I'm supposed to be afraid of him? I don't understand. (laughs) No, no, no. Fear. Fear. And the Bible means like a, a reverence, an awe, an adoration, respect. That's what it means. It's not like, oh, I'm afraid he's going to hit me with a lightning bolt if I say the wrong thing. No, it's he's so, so special and great and wonderful. I just have this deep respect for him and awe and wonder and adoration. And his mercy is for those like that. God's merciful people who respect him. He doesn't get respect by chopping heads like the mighty ones of the world. He gets respect just by being who he is. When you truly see him, you want him, because that's how good he is when you truly see him. That's why I didn't want him when I was a teenager. I, I didn't ever truly see him. God had to open my eyes and when i truly saw him i wanted him as my savior and lord cuz i needed him as both and it's on those who fear him from generation to generation it's just this ongoing mercy to those who fear him from generation from generation to generation from adam to moses to david to isaiah to jeremiah to peter paul Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Billy Graham, and you and me. This mercy goes all the way to us, all the way. That's how powerful the cross is. That's how merciful and open God is to all those who fear him. It keeps going and going and going, and it'll never stop. Verse 51 He's shown strength with his arm. How, Mary? How has he shown strength with his arm? Well, you see in the handout, if you got here on time, you got a handout. I think we ran out. If you didn't get one, don't worry. It's okay. You'll still, if you're taking notes, you'll you'll still get a lot from this. Six ways I've shown you there that he has shown mercy. We get these six different ways that he's shown strength, rather, with his arm. Beginning in the second half of verse 51, verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Number two, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Number three, and exalted those of humble estate. The fourth thing, he's filled the hungry with good things. The fifth thing, and the rich he has sent away empty. And then number six, he has helped his servant Israel. These six things we get if you want to keep it simple for the children here which is like three bad guys and three good guys okay there's there's three people here that are painted in a way that would say don't be like them these are the bad guys <laughs> and there are three others that are presented in a good way saying be like them these are the good guys and this is how god shows strength among those who don't know him and among those who know him The first two examples we get are the ones who don't know him and show that they don't know him by their lives. And this is how God shows strength to them. Verse 1, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. I think I said verse 1. I meant to say number 1, and it's the second part of verse 51. And then the, the second thing that we see here, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. So we've got here the proud being scattered, right, and then the mighty being Brought down from their thrones, the proud. This word also used to confuse me when I first became a Christian because, you know, I thought it was good when my dad said, I'm proud of you. And it's good when I tell my kiddos, I'm proud of you. And then I was hearing in the Bible, God resists the proud. And I was like, Uh-oh, what? I don't I'm now I'm really confused. <laughs> it's a different kind. A different kind of pride when you can look at your kiddos and say, I'm proud of you. What do I mean when I say that? What I mean when I say that is, you have just made me very happy by what you've done. You make me so happy. That's what I mean when I say, I'm proud of you, right? What I don't mean is this. You are better than all other children on planet Earth, and you came from me, and that's why you're great. I'm proud of you. I don't mean that. I just mean you make me very happy. The pride that this is referring to is this. The proud, as God's defining them here, are those who think they don't need God, who think they are better because of who they are. Something about me makes me better than you. I'm smarter. I'm faster. Something about me can make it so that I can look down my nose at you and say, poor, poor you. If only you were like me me you'd be better and the proud of course think also at the same time but you'll never be like me you'll never be as good as me you poor soul that's the idea of the proud they look down their nose in judgment and say there's such a huge difference between you and I and you'll never be at my level of greatness And the mighty, again, rulers, God has the ability to bring them down from their thrones. They got up to their thrones by wicked means, by using their might, cunning, devising evil schemes. God can tear them down. Maybe no one else can. God can. And these rich God, I mean, in the proud, rather, that He scatters this idea, this, this word here for uh, scattering them in their, in their thoughts, the thoughts of their hearts, is the same idea of like throwing seed, scattering it out. He scatters them. They're thrown out. They think they're so important. They think they need to be held on to. Look at me as the standard. And God says, I throw you away. And I can do that. I'll scatter you in those proud thoughts of your heart. And then the third bad guys, if you want to call it that, of our text here, we find at the second part of verse 53, I'm skipping a little bit just for the sake of organizing, the rich he has sent away empty. Here we have the rich. This wealth of theirs has gotten them everything they've ever needed or wanted in life. They've gotten the, not only the dwelling they wanted and the means of transportation they wanted and the clothing they wanted and the jewelry they wanted. They also, with their riches, as you know, can also get out of things they don't want, like trouble and justice brought upon them. They've learned, I can also bribe and buy my way out of this. Perverting justice with their money and also buying powerful positions or buying powerful people and making sure life's always very comfortable, they have filled up their life with everything they want because of their riches, and they say, I'm full, and I have made myself this way because of my money. And what does God do to them? Sends them away empty, not full anymore, God is able to drain that account and send them away empty. So look, I've got a a slide here that I made to organize these people. The first one is this. We've got the proud, the mighty, and the rich. Notice where I've got them on the slide, up at the top, because that's where the world places these people. The world says, these people are so important and then I show next what God has done for them in this text, scattered, brought down, and sent away. That's what he did with these people according to Mary's Magnificat. And that's what he does because of his power. He can do that. She started, this, she started this section saying he has shown strength with his arm. God can do anything that can be done in accordance with his will. And he does. No man can stand up to him and stay his hand or thwart his plans. It can't be done. That's the God we serve. That's the God of the scriptures. He's that powerful. And he's also coupled with goodness. Not like the mighty ones of the earth. They're powerful. and They're not good. So, now... Who does the world put at the bottom, though? In this next slide, I organize it here for you again. I've got those of humble estate and the hungry. And then she mentions in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. So we're just going to put that one as servant because they're in lowly But She uses the word servant. It's literally it's the word dulos, which means slave. And so that's who the world says, eh, Not so great, those of humble estate, the hungry, they're obviously poor. Servants, they're so low. We don't really care about them. Don't be like them. Heaven's no. Humble estate. You don't want to be poor. You don't want to be hungry. You don't want to be at the bottom of the totem pole. You don't want to be the servant. But what's Mary say about these people? This is what God has also done with his arm. Look at the second part of verse 52. He's exalted those of humble estate. Those who are at the lowest, he lifts them up. He says, look at these people. These are the ones I like. He's filled the hungry with good things. When I was reading this and thinking about this, I was thinking about Jesus Christ himself filling the hungry with good things. And I was thinking about Jesus getting on eye level with someone who's sitting down hungry and handing bread and saying, here you go, I have extra. Smiling, looking them right in the eyes. And I was thinking about Jesus' character. And he would do that and probably did that. He was not afraid to get on the level with the hungry and feed them from his very hand. He wanted to do that. And he's done that for you when he saved your soul. He didn't say I'm way up here. You, you're gonna have to just work harder. You're just so far away. You know, if you were just a little bit better, if you just obeyed the rules a bit more, if you dressed better when you came to church, if you attended church more, you know, if you just stopped saying all those bad words, you know, you've just got such a long way to get to me. But you, you keep trying. Now he came down to you and met you in your filth and said, "I'm here for you now." And I've got the food you need. He said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He fills the hungry with good things. And then here at the end, we get her saying, and he's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What is she referring to there? What does she mean he's helped his servant Israel? Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. More than likely a reference to this, Genesis 12, 2 through 3. Listen to this. Actually, if, if we could throw that up, I, don't, I didn't warn you guys about that. But Genesis 12, 2 through 3, if we could get that up for them. Thank you, guys. This is the Lord God speaking to Abraham when he first encounters Abraham. He makes promises to him here in Genesis 12. Verses two and three. And I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who curse you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And watch this, last part. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does God keep that promise? How is it possible to bless the families of the earth through Abraham. I'll tell you how, and some of you know how. It's through the descendant of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came, and all who place their faith and trust in him, believing that he took the punishment for sinners when he died, shed his blood, rose again from the dead. You get into the family of God through that. That's how he blesses. All the families of the earth, because that news is going all around the planet, even today, through some missionaries that you'll never even hear about, not until the last day. Missionaries that will never be spoken about, missionaries that are suffering even right now to do the work. That's how it's blessing all these families. That's how people are getting into the family, and they're the great ones. They're the great ones. Way better than Jeff Bezos or LeBron James or any of those people. Who cares? God is more interested about what's going on in a little dugout canoe right now as that missionary is going down a river, getting bitten by mosquitoes, having just gotten over malaria, perhaps having just buried a child. But the missionaries go into a village to share the gospel. And that's great because Jesus turns everything upside down. What's going on in that village, what's going on even in this room. Someone's close to possibly believing right now or someone's close to possibly having a breakthrough in obedience right now. This is great. This is the greatness. A little church who doesn't even have our own building in our name in Southside, Alabama? You're all hearing the gospel. This is greatness. This is greatness. And God helps his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So, what do we have here? We have a God who keeps his promises, we have a God who keeps his word. Anyone ever made you a promise he or she didn't keep? Anyone ever broke their word to you? It doesn't feel good, does it? Well, don't worry. God's not like that. God keeps his word. Some of you even in here have had some real promises broken that really broke your heart. God won't ever do that. He keeps his word. As he spoke Thousands of years ago to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So who do we look at in the world? Who do we focus on? Who's really great? The greatest one, the greatest one, his birth was announced to no-name shepherds who were dirty, who went to a place where animals are kept and found a teenage girl and her husband had a baby It was wrapped in cloths, lying where animals feed out of. And we're told, we're told to rejoice at that. The angel said, rejoice. And a, a Savior's born to you this day. He's Christ the Lord. And the shepherds did that. They went all around telling everybody. So backwards. So upside down. But God's kingdom that's upside down is right side up. This world is going to try to convince all of you. Listen to me. Even as you leave here and turn on your radios, or even as you leave here and turn on your favorite podcast, I'm telling you, there are things as soon as you leave this room that are jockeying and vying for your attention and trying to tell you, this is important. Go after this. This will make you happy if you do this. And the word of God says, the exact opposite. You've got a battle today of where your trust is going to be, of whose kingdom you're going to build. Yours? Or God's? Today, even. Let me end with this. Because this seems upside down, but it's right side up. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. Really, God? Tell me, who's the one that you look at and say, thumbs up to that person. Tell us, tell us, Lord, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that turn everything around in our lives. You turned everything around when you sent Jesus. You turn everything around in the kingdom, the kingdom that seems so backwards to the world. Those of us who are in it, we know it's right side up, and we thank you that you changed our lives. Those of us who know you, and Lord, I pray, I pray now, Lord, for those who might not know you or hear my voice, that you would awaken them to the truth that you would cause them to repent and believe and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. Now help us as we sing to remember what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen.